Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. We are dedicating uh, this entire hour. We started at about 1.30. We'll continue on for the next number of segments. Uh, our focus on the battle against the coronavirus, specifically uh, looking at areas uh, like tr- contact tracing. You know, one of those new phrases we learned since coronavirus showed up, contact Tracing had a great conversation uh, with the contact tracing lead with the Salt Lake Department of Health, understanding exactly what goes into contact tracing and how the information gleaned during those investigative phone calls are used to combat uh, the coronavirus, specifically in understanding the spread and disseminating the information on how to mitigate that spread. And then uh, we, of course, have moved on now uh, to immunization plans. Uh, what to do, what do we know, what can we glean and learn from the past so that we can make the best decisions going forward. You heard just a moment ago from Rich Lakin, who after a phone call with the CDC just yesterday, has a preliminary prediction that we here in the state of Utah may be on the receiving end of the very first doses of the vaccine by the end of October. By the end of October, if you want to go back and listen to that conversation, uh, you can do so at kslnewsradio.com or wherever you download podcasts and you can find uh, that conversation uh, where he lays out a predicted timeline. Now, of course, understanding, understanding that everything is shifting, uh, nothing about this coronavirus has been absolutely predictable, and that holds true with timelines as well. And so we won't uh, carve that date in stone, uh, but it is certainly a good reason to be optimistic and good reason uh, to, to hope that at least at some point, if it's not as early as the end of October, uh, that soon, uh, very soon, we will be uh, working with a vaccine. So hopefully that comes to be the case. Now, the question arises as to who, who first receives that? Who, who's the first to receive uh, a vaccine when one is made available? Joining me on the line is Audrey Stevenson, Director of Family Health Services for the Salt Lake County Health Department. Uh, And she, some years ago, about 2009, was involved uh, in uh, the H1N1 vaccine. And when decisions had to be made then, uh, she was there. Uh, Audrey, thank you so much for for your time uh, and thank you for the expertise you bring to this conversation. My pleasure. What did you learn back in 2009? Well, in 2009, um, we already had a seasonal influenza product. So a lot of individuals had already been vaccinated or were in the the process of being vaccinated with the seasonal influenza. Um, The disease actually started in the spring, and we started seeing cases of that. And so there was a very quick timeline to develop a vaccine for the H1N1 specifically because the seasonal influenza, although it protected against other strains, didn't cover that one. So when it came available, uh, it required individuals to be fully protected to receive both products. Well, the vaccine for the H1N1, when it first came out, came out in very limited supply. And so one of the big challenges and learning uh, moments that we had with regard to that vaccine was that um, the demand far exceeded our capacity and our ability to um, be able to deliver it into the community. And so the lessons learned 
is to do a better job in communicating those individuals that should be receiving those first doses and to ensure that the facilities, venues, and other vaccine uh, types of capabilities are equal to the task of being able to deliver large numbers of, of vaccines very, very quickly to minimize, um, especially at this time of year, um, the congregation or the potential for individuals to be exposed uh, to other diseases that may be circulating at the same time that the vaccine is available. Mm. What was the decision-making process when you looked at that limited supply, high demand? How did you, how'd you put together a prioritization list? Well, the CDC had made a recommendation at that time. Uh, the, the focus on those initial doses was uh, primarily healthcare workers, pregnant women, and children. Because at that time, with the H1N1, those were the groups that seemed to be dis disproportionately impacted by the, um, by the disease. And so those first doses were earmarked for those uh, particular groups. Um, we found out later that um, as the vaccine became more available that there were other groups that probably were equally um, affected by that. So the decision-making part of that had to deal with um, how do we get um, the vaccines to those individuals. So we did mass clinics for the delivery of those vaccines. Hmm. As you look back on the 09 experience and maybe other experiences with vaccines, uh, what are the, the biggest lessons that we need to be sure to apply uh, to the dissemination of uh, a coronavirus vaccine should it become available soon? So I think the biggest lessons learned is that we have a number of different uh, vaccine partners within the community. So. Um, back in 2009, for example, pharmacies were not part of the vaccine delivery uh, mm. uh, system. And so now individuals have the option of going to a health care provider. They can go to a health department. They can go to a pharmacy. They can go to um, events that are sponsored by vaccinators like Community Nursing Service. So our, our biggest lesson learned has been to use those partnerships to communicate within these partnerships to ensure that we're providing the vaccine throughout the, the area so that there aren't vulnerable populations that don't have access to this vaccine. Lastly, before we go, and thank you for all of this, an important question I have for you. When the coronavirus vaccine uh, makes its way here to Utah uh, and uh, folks are receiving their injections, does the microchip hurt when it goes in? <laughs> you know, that that is... <laughs> a funny um, uh, myth that has been circulated. Um, and I think that, that the philanthropic um, activities that has been um, provided by the Bill Gates Foundation for the delivery of vaccines in other parts of the country where they have vulnerabilities for things like measles and polio and some of these things has crossed over to where there's the assumption that Bill Gates is part of the vaccine manufacturing process, which he absolutely is not. So, right. um, you know, I would be more afraid of your cell phone uh, tracking your activities <laughs> than anything in a vaccine. <laughs> uh, a lot of rumors, a lot of fears that folks have. Uh, I, I guess all I can say is, uh, for my part, I am 100% comfortable being on the receiving end of a vaccine once it is available. Uh, may I ask uh, your comfort level personally? Uh, well, you know, there was a, uh, an op-ed piece that came out um, Wednesday of this week, and it was by the FDA commissioner, Dr. Hahn. 
And in it, he said that no matter what, only a safe, effective vaccine is going to get approval. And so we can't rush the process of the immune response. So even in these test candidates that are receiving the vaccine, and it's 120,000 nationwide that are receiving this vaccine, and we can't rush that process. And we have to make sure that the vaccine is going to be effective, and we have to make sure that it doesn't have side effects and that it's safe to administer. So I think by the time that there's a vaccine that's available, that, that those issues have been vetted, and I would feel safe in receiving the vaccine. Outstanding. We'll leave it at that. Audrey Stevenson, Director of Family Health Services for the Salt Lake County Health Department. Thank you so much for your expertise uh, and the expertise drawn specifically from your experiences in 2009 on uh, applying that and how we can best uh, get this vaccine distributed to the folks who need it once it's available. Thanks again. Thank you. All righty. Uh, we're going to take a quick break right here. When we return, uh, our final segment uh, as we focus on this battle uh, that you and I are together waging against the coronavirus. We'll be speaking to someone who has quite literally been on the front lines, not just here in Utah, uh, but he also uh, was one of those nurses who hopped on a plane and very selflessly traveled to New York City to combat the coronavirus when it was heated. When that was a hot spot, a uh, Utah was there. We'll speak to Jared Farron next. Jacob Farron on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. We are wrapping up a special hour we've dedicated to our fight against the coronavirus that will be podcasted and available to you not long after today's live program wraps up. And of course, you can get those uh, podcasts uh, wherever you download them. And of course, at kslnewsradio.com. Another resource for you is the KSL news radio app uh, if you download that powered by any hour services of course you will find uh, archived broadcasts of the program you will be able to stream live uh, what we're talking about right now and even uh, they've installed a, a little camera here uh, into my at-home studio so if you want to see the cat running around in the background uh, or you want to see the the map i've got hanging up in my wall i've also got a, a handprint and a, fi- and a footprint from little baby piper yeah, check that out ksl news radio uh, the news radio app powered by any hour services. Do you remember uh, a few months back, uh, New York City was having a very tough time with the coronavirus outbreak. In fact, there was uh, a period of time towards the end of March, early May, uh, where that was pretty much the epicenter of things uh, around the world. Uh, there were uh, some extreme, extreme uh, challenges facing that city. And at a briefing on March 30th, during this coronavirus outbreak, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, called on doctors and nurses from around the country to come help with the crisis in New York. As governor of New York, I am asking healthcare professionals across the country, if you don't have a healthcare crisis in your community, please come help us in New York now. We need relief. We need relief for nurses who are working uh, 12-hour shifts, one after the other after the other. We need relief for doctors. We need relief for attendants. So if you're not busy, come help us, please. Utah answered the call. A number of Utahns. They hopped on a plane, they traveled out to New York City, and they lent their expertise and their help, and they gave uh, comfort and healing to those who were suffering. And New York has now returned the favor. New York right now uh, has partnered up with Utah, and they're sending 
periodically uh, various nurses and medical professionals who are here now sharing uh, the knowledge they gained uh, in New York City fighting uh, the worst COVID-19 outbreak in the country. Joining us now on the line is one of those nurses who uh, back in March answered the call put out uh, by New York Governor uh, Andy Cuomo. Uh, who today, coincidentally, has just announced that students will be able to attend school in person. Uh, I've got some uh, younger, very much younger siblings uh, who are very excited living in New York to, to hear that news. Uh, but again, uh, back to the topic at hand. One of those nurses who answered the call, you heard the plea from Andrew Cuomo from March, one of those nurses uh, who hopped on a plane and put himself uh, quite literally in harm's way uh, was Jacob Farron, a registered nurse with Intermountain Primary Children's Hospital, uh, joining me uh, right now. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm well. I'm honored to be speaking to you. I also, uh, at the same time, though, feel a little bad, like maybe I'm taking you away from some of the good work that you continue to do uh, here in Utah. L- let's roll back the hands of time just a, a little bit. When uh, the governor made that call, uh, you and others uh, answered. Why, why did you do that? Um, you know, the reason that I personally chose to go out, I felt a strong sense of duty to country. Uh, I had spent some time previous to nursing school as a wildland firefighter, and I, I saw that as an opportunity to uh, help people and to kind of give back to uh, a country that has given me so much. And I've kind of always wanted to do that on the medical front, and thankfully, Intermountain Healthcare made it possible for me to get out there and to help out a people in need. So, so you're not only a healthcare provider; you're a wildland firefighter. <laughs> That's like well, double. I did, I did that for two years before nursing school, so <laughs> that, I, I'm not doing that anymore. But, well, that uh, that puts you into double stud uh, category. What did you What did you observe when you were in New York City? Yeah, you know, we saw we saw a lot of crazy stuff it was um it's something i've never seen before a healthcare system that has literally been overrun with patients and i think what what was very interesting to me was that take everything that you know about new york from tvs or movies and for me this was my first time going to new york and it kind of turned everything on its head what i thought would be streets that were full of life and had tons of people there uh, a city that you're never supposed to really drive through because of all the traffic. It was almost post-apocalyptic because there was nobody on the streets. Um, and then the hospitals and the intensive care units, which are nor- you know normally like you don't have a ton of patients in an intensive care unit, were full of people and they were adapting different areas uh, to be kind of makeshift ICUs, um, which kind of makes this feel like a almost like a hidden natural disaster where hmm. you you know you're not the regular public can't really see all of the mayhem that's going on inside of the hospitals um, but it was also amazing to see how welcoming people in New York were and to see how out of the way people were going to show support for one another even while they were socially distanced uh, we were at one shift change at a hospital where Firefighters and EMS crews came right at 7 o'clock for shift change, and they were playing music, and they had their lights and sirens going, and they, even the general public came out and were standing on their balconies, everybody, you know, obviously socially distanced, but applauding 
one another as a united symbol of showing respect. And to me, that was one of the most touching things that I, I think I've seen. It was kind of a combination of worlds for me. Yeah, that that daily ritual became uh, just a, a remarkable uh, reminder of the good work that folks like you were doing. And if I remember correctly, uh, it was the the practice of Jeff Kaplan here on KSL News Radio to each day play uh, a live stream at what would have been about five o'clock our time. Uh, the 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 sirens and the cheering that came uh, during shift change. When you returned here to Utah, what were the what were the biggest lessons and experiences you you gained in New York that you have brought now back here to Utah as the fight continues on the home front? You know, I had some really good personal and uh, overall social takeaways. Personally, I have to say that uh, my wife is amazing. She was incredibly supportive of me going out there. And she knew that I, I felt like I had a personal calling to go out and help. And she literally told me, uh, I know the good that you can do, and I feel like I would be selfish to keep you here. Um, so I kind of have to thank her for being, I, you know, that allowed me to go out there and to focus 100, 100% on what I was doing and to focus on the, the mission at hand. Um, and then from, like, a corporate, like, group dynamic perspective, I personally thought I was going to come away from that with clinical takeaways on how to best care for COVID patients. And, and I certainly had that. And I think we were able to bring a lot of good knowledge back to Intermountain Healthcare. But every person that I talked to uh, realized that most of the takeaways were social. When I was a wildland firefighter, one of my, my old boss, who's a you know, former Army vet, he, he told us the term Stemper Gumby. You know, the Marines have a term, Semper Fidelis, which means forever faithful. So Semper Gumby means forever flexible. And I think in a time when there's so much changing, and I mean, in the past four months, the way that we've handled COVID has changed dramatically. You know, we went from thinking, oh, this is just another, you know, not such a big deal coronavirus to realizing, oh, my gosh, this is a huge deal. And we should all be wearing masks in public and socially distancing ourselves. And I think to me, that's the biggest takeaway that kind of applies to all levels of this pandemic is being flexible, going with what the most updated information is from reliable sources and uh, making sure that we keep one another safe. Outstanding. Jacob Farron, registered nurse with Intermountain Healthcare. Thank you so much for the, the good work you're doing here, for the insight you've brought to this program and for uh, that, that bold travel out to New York City in the early days of this virus, combating things on that front. Thanks again for your time. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. 100%. We uh, are going to continue this conversation next week. The, the reason we reached out uh, to Jacob was to hear of his travels to New York City. Uh, why? Well, because New York is returning the favor. And right now, here in the state of Utah, there are a team, uh, there is a team of 100 doctors and nurses uh, who are here and they are assisting uh, in our own battle here, returning the favor uh, offered by uh, nurses and healthcare providers just like Jacob. Uh, so that'll come up next week. Be sure to tune in to those conversations with the nurses who have come here uh, to help us in Utah. Quick break. When we return, I will begrudgingly talk about TikTok. Yeah, you don't want to miss that. Stick around. I'm Lee Lonsberry. This is Live Mike, and you're listening to KSL News Radio.